1: Welcome, everyone, to episode 33 of the Rust Belt Rundown, a Rust Belt recruiting production. I am your host, Paul O'Connor, and on this episode, we are joined by Andy McCartney of Boat & Manufacturing. Uh, Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Thanks, Paul. Good to be here.
1: All right, so first and foremost, it's March. Um, so let's check in. Is your bracket still alive? Uh, I So we
0: I, I run a pool. It's like 20-some of us and you're allowed to do two of them, right? So I tell everybody, do what you think is going to happen and what you hope is going to happen. And so yeah. the good news is, is one of my brackets is in first place and one of them in last place. And, uh, I'm not going to tell you which one's which. I was going to then...
1: say, is it the hope or the want? Which?
0: <laughs> so the irony is, is the hope bracket right now. So my daughter graduated, my oldest graduated from Purdue. So I had them in it all. And, uh, I think in the, in that one, I didn't have Kentucky going very far. And you know, that, that seemed to have busted a lot of the other. So I thought Tennessee was going to do really well. And so I had them going to the, I think I had them going to the finals in the one that I, what I thought was going to happen. And obviously that didn't turn out so well.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I think it's one of those, we, you know, I, I would love to hit a hole in one, one day in my life. I would love to have a perfect bracket. I don't know which one I'd rather have, but yeah, um, I don't think either are going to happen. Well, either considering
0: happen. what the 14 and a half million ESPN folks that did, there's none left.
1: So, yeah, um, it's, it's been a crazy tournament so far. Oh. But, um, yeah, it's been. What it's else been awesome is new, fun. right? It's, it's as usual, it's crazy. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, cool. Well, listen, let's jump in. Um, I want to talk about, I just want to start with talking about your time in the US Navy. Um, and I want to specifically ask how does working you know, for for a branch of our armed forces prepare you for life and business, right? Because truthfully, you're working on this side in a life and death scenario, not necessarily every single job, but, you know, you are working in one of those types of environments versus, you know, you come to business and people may think it's life and death, but it isn't. So how does that prepare you for business and and life's challenges?
0: Well, so I do think it gives you a little perspective on on just what matters in the time sensitivity to stuff. The, I think there it's fun. I, my, the best man in in our wedding is still in the Navy. My older brother just retired. And, and uh, so I've spent the last 20 some years, I've been out 23 years now and, and uh, you know, staying in touch with folks that I know well and, and talking about the differences and experience the difference between kind of the civilian world and and the military. Um, You know, the, the opportunity to lead, I mean, so I'm, I'm not actually an engineer by trade, but um, I mean, I was a physics major, I got a master's in electrical engineering, um, but the opportunity to show up at a ship and all of a sudden you've got a division of guys working for you and you know less than anybody about the stuff that you now effectively own as a part of that, that ship. And, and so if you show up and you tell them, uh, hey, it's my way or the highway, even though you don't know anything, you get one kind of response. And if you show up and say, Hey guys, look, I'm responsible for all this stuff to the folks up the chain of command. And if you help me not look like an idiot to them, I'll, I'll do what I can to protect you and, and, and make sure we get to be in a good spot. And, and so they certainly appreciate that when I got out of the Navy uh, and came to Bowden, uh, you know, my, it was, if it, it wasn't a family business till I showed up, my dad was here. And so then it became kind of this family business because we were both there and, and, the only real training I had was that, that was applicable was was leadership training, and um, you know the opportunity to come in. I mean, again, it wasn't rocket science. I had the same last name as the old man in the corner office, right? So we we had a sense of where that was going, and yet you know I came in to learn, and and once they see that you actually want to learn and you have some intellectual capacity to understand what's going on, and and hopefully help make it better, uh, you know. The, the, the team was very responsive to that. And and that's you know what you every time you go to a new ship, you get a new bunch of folks that, that you got to start working with. And, and I think the benefit of being in the military is, is there's always somebody new, it's a rotational thing. So every two years, there's a new captain comes in. And so you expect that things are going to change, whereas in, you know, I've been here for 23 years, and there's no there's not typically something that says, OK, every two years, we're going to expect everything's going to have the potential to change. And so, um, you know, the ups and downs and the events of the economy and the pandemic and these things coming at you now, there's outside impetus to change. And, and I'm sure you've heard the the phrase, you know, never waste a good crisis. Um, you know, when stuff happens, I mean, in the in the military you're doing the same stuff that was being done years and years and years and decades ago because it's there's a tradition there, and yet there's nuanced changes that happen, and hopefully we get better. In um, in the business world, you don't necessarily have uh, those things that are forcing a change just by a turn of the calendar, uh, because you know we're humans; we tend to do the same thing that we used to do, and and how we evolve and change, it's a it can be a challenging challenging process. But so I think it's been. You know, it's been uh, a fun couple of decades uh, out um, and and trying to apply some of those lessons. I think um, it's been helpful to me uh, when when I talk to folks about, you know, being in a control room, running a couple of nuclear power plants. You know, there is life and death. And 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 yet 95 to 99 percent of the time, it's not something that you're making these snap decisions and you're fighting. A, a war all the time. Right. But uh, you know, when, when I tell people, when, when I would sit with the guys in the control and it's three o'clock in the morning, cause you're on watch and, and I tell them, look, I'm going to try and explain what and why I'm asking you to do something. And yet, you know, if something happens and we need to respond now you're going to hear the change in the tone of my voice. It's going to let you know, Hey, something's going on here that we got to pay attention to. And, and, and it was funny. I had that conversation with the team and, and about two weeks later, we're operating and, and we get an all-back full emergency and on an aircraft carrier that typically means that a plane was supposed to take off with a cat shot and something happened and the plane went down in front of the boat and so you know all of a sudden the environment changes almost instantly because that just doesn't happen very often it was the only time it ever happened to me uh stand and watch and yet you know the team responded obviously my voice changed and we got a little more excited and yeah. you know, we executed what we need to do. Uh, it's not like your car where you just step on the brake. Um, when you got a nuclear power plant, you gotta, you, there's a few other things you gotta do to make sure that that something bad doesn't happen when, when you make it an extreme speed change like that. And, and so it was, I mean, again, it's, it's, Hey, we, we did it. We adjusted. And then afterwards we talked about it. Hey, everybody did what they were supposed to do. We all respond. We're trained early on in the service, and you know you hear boot camp, and you know you want to be able to obey commands and execute, but also keep your brain engaged so that you're looking to make sure something's happening and that we're not making a big mistake. And and so uh, it was a great experience. You know, I I think you know there's a part of me that thinks hey, all of us should have the opportunity to go through boot camp and understand what it's like to uh, be in a disciplined mode. Yeah. Um i had three daughters who had zero interest in going in and and maybe it was mostly just because they were gonna have to get their hair cut pretty short and they didn't want to think about that but uh you know they got a chance to see the naval academy and see some of the places that we've been and and, uh you know i they were really still pretty young when i got out so um you know they didn't get vivid memories where my older brother's uh kids you know they moved around the world with him he had you know stationed in hawaii stationed in japan and, and so they got some other experiences so Um, you know, it's not just a job, it's an adventure, they say, right? In the old commercials, it's true.
1: Yeah. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on a quote that relates to all of this. Um, And the quote is, individual glory is often believed to be the best marker of success, but it is cooperation and teamwork that usually wins the day in your professional life. I think we, and I'll say we as the United States of America, has been we've been programmed to, you know, it's, it's about you. It's about individual success. It's about your next promotion. It's about what you do, what you bring. Um, And there's now books, you know, all about this and that basically are trying to shift that. Yeah. That's not bad. Individual success is by no means bad. And you should always be striving to do your best and do better. But I think what they're now seeing is that the people that cooperate the best are actually achieving more than people that are just dead set on me, mine, I. Um, so the question is, would you agree with that? And then if so, you know, how does this play into the culture that, you know, you've developed? I mean, you take over for your dad and like, how do you instill that type of culture?
0: Well, and so I certainly agree that it's true. And, and I mean, as a fellow basketball junkie, right, I mean, basketball and and you know, at the elite level, uh, you know, it's there's only five people on the court and, and we certainly celebrate individual success. I mean, uh, you know, I, I was watching the Buckeyes. So as an Ohio guy, you know, watching a little of the Buckeyes game and, and the, the commentator made the comment, hey, in the first 20 some field goals, there were only two assists, mm-hmm. right? A lot of one on one basketball. Well, they're not in the tournament anymore, you know, and, and they, you know, essentially hey, against a team that plays really good defense you can't go one on one because you end up going one on two and that's when bad things happen right yeah. and and you know my favorite basketball coach of all time guy by the name of Wooden that most of I heard about and he didn't want any stars anywhere right and yet he developed some of the greatest in the that ever played the game but he did it because they were all there to function as a team and and yes he wanted to get their best out of them but in the function of a team and i think you know the the opportunity for us to celebrate And and there's a selfishness that I think is unfortunately most represented in basketball where how many points did I get and versus the sports that have more people there, a pitcher knows he can't win a world series by himself. Hmm. Even a a position player can't. And, and, you know, Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback that's ever played. He didn't make the super bowl this year, right? Because it takes a team to get it done. And, and so uh, the unfortunate reality of, of our celebritizing of everything these days makes us think that that's, that's the height of, of our success. And, and yet in the reality, you know, that's, that's, it's such a small percentage of people that are doing that and you don't see the behind the scenes work that's being done as a part of the team. And And we know that if we're just all about ourselves, we don't get any help. And if you don't get any help, there's not teamwork involved. It's really hard to go, very far and, and be very successful. So, no, I, I definitely agree with that, that quote and that mindset. Um, and, and here, you know, it's a team sport and, and, you know, everybody's got a part to play. And, and from, from me out trying to sell get new customers to setting a vision for our team down through every single person who's doing it. And, and uh, truly, you know, when I think of an organizational chart, you know, I've got it inverted where I've got my director force. I'm trying to support and make sure that that they they have everything they need to be successful and that their mission is, you know, we got these machines behind me and and obviously I'm on a podcast, maybe you can't see that, but, but, you know, we got to keep those machines going, which means we got to, we got to support the people who are, are operating them as best we can make sure they know what they're doing, what needs to be done. And they're out there, doing what feels in a lot of cases like road stuff. And yet they've got to engage their brain and work together. And and a team, you know, in in this environment, it's really easy to go, look, I've got my machine, just leave me alone. And, And yet a better approach is, Hey, there's a group of us that have machines pretty close by and we can help each other out to maximize the output of the machines that all together and be more successful as a team, because, our customers are counting on us. They're counting us to make good parts. They're counting us to make them on time. And the better we can do that and the more cost-effectively we can do that as a team, the better it's going to be for everybody.
1: Yeah, it's a fine line, right? Like you want to reward individual success, but I think, you know, especially if you're in sales, right? Just traditional sales and you have a base and you have commission right? It's just you and your world. And it's what I sold and, you know, what I killed and what I got, and this is me. And I think, you know, a lot of people say, well, no, but yeah, we're a team or a family. And it's like, well, how do you reward your people, right? Like, is there a team aspect? Um, And I think that's one of those ways you can shift it is, you know, what if in, in a crazy world, the sales team got rewarded if the customer success team upsold something you know and like it was like this person's success actually got rewarded over here and vice versa you know that would be and i think we're getting there with a lot of people they're looking at it right the last two years has completely shifted how we think about a million things sure. but and um, and we don't we don't
0: have commissioned sales we have we have guys that are part of the team and they're in the sales team and hey we got to go sell stuff we know that, that the irony is is You know, the salesperson getting an extra dollar or two on a price to sell to somebody or the guy on the shop floor realizing, hey, if I use a different tool here, I can save two minutes off the cycle. They're both getting a savings. They're both helping add to the bottom line. They're potentially both helping the customer get what they need. And yet, you know, should we compensate one just because he happens to be the one or she happens to be the one that's the one who is given or has that relationship? Yeah. Um, so it's not, I mean, that's, you know, we, we just don't do that anymore because it, it isn't a team. It isn't, a, it, it it is a team effort and it, it, we got to compensate and reward in that fashion.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. So we've talked about, uh, at great lengths on this podcast about the challenges that companies have seen over the past two years, um, in terms of recruiting, retention, hiring, just, you know, workforce in general. So, you know, what, what has the last two years looked like for you? And then how have you either shifted or adjusted to remain competitive to what people are looking for nowadays?
0: Well, it's funny because, you know, we in manufacturing, we feel like we've been having this crisis of, of workforce for about a decade mm-hmm. and the rest of the world suddenly realized that holy mackerel is hard to find workers. And and I think there's a number of reasons for that. Um, but you know, we, we started about a decade ago where we stopped using the word machinist when, when we were going, especially into the, the high schools and colleges, because frankly, the kids didn't have any association with it, but their parents did, right? And, and so the so idea a
1: generational was, thing.
0: Yeah. When, and the, the parents heard the word machinist and, you know, they heard people in our industry saying, no, you could get a good job. And that's a you can make some good money and who wants to just do good right and and who wants now who want, who wants to just say okay there's the ceiling and i'm gonna go run a machine for 30 years and that's that's good okay well i don't want good for my kid i want great for my kid. and and so we started using the word engineer and a manufacturing engineer and all of a sudden now the parents are like well shoot yeah i want my kid to be an engineer and, you know, I asked the question because we had actually hired uh, a young engineer uh, and he was working in our quality department and and we were sitting in a room and I had, uh, you know, machinist who had been with us for eight years. And I had fresh out of Miami, Ohio engineer been with us about three months. And I said, okay, who, who would we refer to more as a manufacturing engineer? My three months out of college or my eight years on the shop floor guy? And it was a pretty easy answer, right? I mean the guy who's been setting up and running machines, developing processes, doing this way more engineering, manufacturing, engineering knowledge than my fresh out of college, three months, you know, young man, I mean, smart young man, very capable, but he didn't have nearly the experience of my, yep. my eight-year guy in the building. And so, so ironically, trying to have our machinists wrap their brains around the fact that they're actually manufacturing engineers and that they can think of themselves as, in that, in that way and wanting to develop their skills instead of just thinking, okay, I'm pushing a button and I'm making a part, but I got to engage my brain to think about, Hey, how are we doing this? Why are we doing this way? Is there a way we can do things better at the same time? We, uh, and we started what we now refer to as our next gen project six years ago. Um, and we hired our first, uh, degreed engineer to come and work on the shop floor. Um, and, and Nate is still with us six years later, um, a case kid. And uh, you know, we, we sold him on this idea of you know, he, you know, they're all brainwashed. So, so taking half a step back, when I was at the Naval Academy in the Navy, you're brainwashed that you want to have command of something one day, right? You got to have command of a ship. You got to have a command of a squadron. You got to have command of something because they're teaching leadership. And that's the highest form of leadership is to have command of something. I used to kid my older brother that I got my command first because I got out of the Navy, came here to go around the company before he got his first ship. He had three ships, so he wasn't too worried about it later, but that was our little <laughs> joke.
1: But so the mechanical
0: engineers by and large, they're brainwashed that they wanna be design engineers one day, right? They've learned these skills. They wanna design cool stuff that's gonna, you know, solve the world's problems, make cool stuff and, and make some money doing it, right? And so the challenge is, is when they graduate, they have very little knowledge about how stuff actually gets made. And so we say, look, there's two main ways that you can learn. The normal way to learn to be a design engineer is you go to a company that has a bunch of them, they're in cubicles usually, you go sit in the cubicle next to one of them, you watch what he does or she does. And at some point, pretty early on, they give you a piece of paper, say, okay, go design this. Now, the kids these days, the students, they can do 3D CAD like breathing, right? Us old guys, at, I'm 51, I mean, for me to try and manipulate 3D CAD is a, is a stretch, a big stretch. And I feel like I'm fairly computer savvy. Those, these kids do it like nothing. The problem is they have no idea what to make the, the machine do. But so he said, okay, go design this. So they can design it, and then they take it down to the shop. And they say to the shop person, hey, I need to make this part I just designed. And the shop person says, what are you doing? You can't make that part. And if they find a nice one, they said, okay, you got to fix this. You got to change this tolerance. You got to change this feature. And so, of course, the student, you know, that, that brand new engineer takes that drawing back up in 30 seconds, has made all the changes and are right back down the shop. How about now? Perfect. And so you do that 10 to 20 to 50 times and suddenly you become a design engineer because all the stuff you designed and then you take it out to actually get made, you've had to go through the iterative process to make it f- manufacturable where our process is, hey, come here. We will get you dirty, teach you how to make stuff so that when it comes time to design something, you'll actually know what a tolerance is, the difference between plus or minus two on a half inch diameter or a three inch diameter. Well, there's a big difference. And I can say those numbers out loud and it wouldn't make sense if there's a difference. If you've held plus or minus two on a three inch diameter for eight hours, you will never casually put a tight tolerance on the drawing again, right? Because you've fought that for eight hours. It's a pain in the butt. The only time you'll do it is if you absolutely need it. And preferably you're trying to design your way out of it because you don't want it to have to be that tight. And so having them have that very practical experience very quickly puts them in a spot where they have a lot more confidence of what they're doing when they get into that design mode. So that, that process, so we've uh, we've been up as high as, as 18 degree engineers running machines. Um, I think right now we have about 12 um, and that's and part of that Navy mindset, right? So when I went to my first ship, I took over for a guy who had been there two years. I was there for just under two years. And then another person came along and they took the job. I went to the next school and the next bigger job and the opportunity for us, you know, our industry we tend to want to have somebody come in and if we're going to put any training time and energy into them, we want them to stay for life. When was the last time you talked to somebody under age 25 that even could commit to doing anything for five years, let alone five minutes, right? I mean, yep. I have three daughters in, the, in their twenties. It is not their normal mindset, right? I, I mean, we say, look, do our program. It's about two to three years. And that will put you in a spot where you can, um, where you can have options either within the building or with, you know, outside the building. And because I grew up, grew up, if you will, in that Navy mindset where, Hey, if we could get two to three years out of somebody um, that would be a win for them because they're going to leave a confident engineer. It'd be a win for us because we've had an opportunity to have them engage with us and, and uh, be a part of our machine force, especially in a zone where it's really hard to find people to do it.
1: So let's let's jump into um, you know Bowdoin and what you guys manufacture manufacture and what industries do you primarily serve? So going into the pandemic, we did a lot of aerospace.
0: Um, we've we've always done a lot of defense, um, and and obviously when the pandemic hit, you know this industry that goes kind of steadily steady growth forever <laughs> went just took a dive. Right? I mean nobody was flying and. You know, several of our customers laid eighty-plus percent of their workforce off, um, and and so a year and a half later, so four to six months ago, they were starting to build, trying to build back their workforces, and you know, with everybody trying to find people, um, it's been a challenging thing for them to get uh, their supply chains and themselves back in a reasonable spot. Um, the defense stuff has been kind of the staple. Uh, of, for our company, for decades, um, and and so we deal with some of the bigger defense contractors, General Dynamics and the like, and and um, so that's kind of stayed steady throughout the pandemic. Um, one area we got into, kind of as an offshoot from that, we did get into the commercial gun market about ten years ago now. Um, so making parts for rifles, um, and so during the pandemic, uh, that. That market went a little crazy, and so it went from being I think 22% of us up to about 83% of us for a while, which was partly because we contracted with aerospace going totally away, um, but we committed a lot more resources. We more than doubled the rifle, you know, rifle business that we were doing. Uh, we developed our own product line. Bow and tactical is a separate. Uh, separate entity for us now for sales and marketing purposes primarily. Um, but so, uh, that business has continued to, to be a, par- a big part of what we're doing. Um, but so, uh, a lot of industrial stuff, mostly regionally. Uh, we do have a couple, you know, customers as far as Texas and, and up in the new England States and, uh, but, but predominantly it's regionally, you know, Cleveland area, Columbus area, Chicago, um, So it's, it's, you know, pretty wide range. I, 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 my outline always was, you know, wide range of industries, wide range of raw materials. Uh, we do a lot of net shape stuff. So extrusions, castings, forging stuff, which, uh, you know, it's, it takes a little extra, uh, engineering work to hang on to a casting or a forging or extrusion than just having plate stock. Um, and so that's kind of the breadth of what we do.
1: Awesome. Um, So talk to me, I mean, you know, you said 10 years, was it 10 years ago you got into uh, the arms and like the tactical, 10 years ago you started that? Yeah, about 10 10 years ago. Okay. So what does 2030 look like? You know, will you have another, will you have a completely different thing that you guys are manufacturing that you have no idea? Or is it like, oh, we could see ourselves going there? So uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, The one thing I think that we learned the most
0: out of this tactical experience is that uh, having our own product line, uh, you know, it's one of those things where when you're a total contract manufacturer, as we were since inception, uh, you know, it's one of those grass is always greener on the other side. Uh, Wouldn't it be nice if we could just make for inventory and we could have design, you know, control and all that stuff. And and while it's not all it's cracked up to be, uh, finding the right product and digging in Uh, We've learned a lot about uh, kind of business to business and business to direct to consumer marketing um, that has been new for us. And uh, I think, you know, know, kind of sinking our teeth into that marketplace and then expanding into it um, has been a great experience for us. Uh, We do have a couple projects kind of on the the slow R&D path that uh, could turn into larger uh, larger pieces of the enterprise, and and could ultimately either be spun off or be something that just kind of takes a life of its own. Um, so there is definite uh, appeal to you know adding to our product line. I think um, you know we we're, we're playing into this one, and yet the, the challenge with this this market, this tactical market, is very volatile, right? I mean, it is up and down. So you know having spent a lot of our years doing defense and aerospace work that's fairly consistent kind of year over year stuff to the stuff that, you know, is oscillating really rapidly, almost feels like at times week to week. Um, You know, that's just a, it's a, it, it doesn't help you sleep well at night all the time when, and when it's down and when it's up, you know, again, it's, it's, it feels great that you're, you're behind because you got so much to do that you can't keep, can't keep up. Um, and yet, you know, you got to do it while you can, because the market's just as likely to turn tomorrow as it as it was to get to where it is. So uh, I think 2030, um, you know, my hope is, is that uh, we would have diversified a little bit more. Uh, it feels like, um, you know, there's size thresholds that, um, you know, we're we're in that 8 to 10 million range right now in sales. And I think, you know, getting up you know, in the 12 to 15 zone here in the next couple of years and to see kind of where that takes us. But, um, you know, I could I could definitely see, uh, you know, getting another product line in a, in a different industry that, that could help offset the volatility of of the tactile world that we're spending time in would be uh, would be an opportunity for us. Um, and, and it's hard to see. I think the opportunity to grow young manufacturing professionals is a big part of what we're what we're doing and, and help them to understand how we can service a customer, uh, how we can really develop the best manufacturing process. And, and that has to go outside the scope of just what goes on in this building, right? We have to look at the entire chain of what's happening from how our vendors are doing, what they're doing to serve, you know, support us, as well as how is the customer using this part? And when you have a young engineer who sees a a piece part component and you can translate that into, Hey, what does it go into uh, at the next stage? And how can we go uh, visit our customer and see how they're using it and talk with their team and and see, Hey, how can we make this more manufacturable that would, that would ultimately provide the the best total value for, for the entire supply chain and ultimately for the end user. And, and, you know, in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of talk about reshoring stuff and, and bringing it back and, you know, I think we know that we have to continue to get better, uh, you know, as a, as an American manufacturer, if we want to make that reshoring thing actually make financial sense, we've talked about it in a couple of different areas, right? Where, where the, the incentive is driving, you know, we all want to say, Hey, we'd love to make everything in America. And yet we have to go spend our money on products. And, and if the products aren't competitively priced, there's only so much we'll do to buy something that's made in America versus something that, that's significantly less expensive of what I'll call comparable quality. Yep. Um, you know, most of the consumer goods that that we see in the store, you know, a significant percentage of them are made overseas because they're so much cheaper than what we can do in this country. And yep. it, is that is that real? Okay, some of it's real, but we know the entire state of the the world economy. Prices are going up, and it's partly because people are starting to get kind of, you know, forced to have a living wage everywhere in the world, and that's just going to take all the prices up. And and so, you know, for us to think our way into more cost-effective ways of doing stuff, um, and and so I know our, our our young idealistic engineers are excited to figure out, hey, how do we solve some of these problems? And and I certainly want to fan that fan that flame and and give them the opportunity to to talk with our customers, find out, Hey, how are you using this? Are there ways we could try and do it different and better uh, that might take some costs out of the equation while providing the same or even better uh, output and value for, for the end user when they're doing their stuff.
1: Yep. Um, Okay. So I, you know, normally this, this question alone could take an entire podcast episode. So we'll try and keep it to, you know, a word or a sentence for each, but if you were to provide a SWOT analysis on the state of Ohio and manufacturing, you know, what, what would that look like?
0: Uh, I think the, you know, so the strengths that we have, our industrial supply base is is really tremendous. I mean, there you can get most anything, uh, you know, regionally, certainly. Um, we've done some projects with some folks out, uh, you know, in the further, I guess it starts to feel west from us because we're on the east side of the Midwest, but, you know, out in in Nevada and some of the places that are a little more remote and they can't get raw materials the way we can get them. They can't get the same services. They certainly don't have nearly as many options. Um, So our industrial supply base is, um, is a significant strength that we have. And, and the, the opportunity to have both Machine tools and and the 3D printing research and stuff that's going on. I mean, there's zero question in my mind that as as that evolves and gets more cost effective and, and uh, you know the aerospace uh, industry has some really strict um, you know regulations because they don't want planes falling out of the sky. And yet that technology, if if they can really work to do some of the more complicated aerospace parts in a 3D printing environment, you know they they're just tough parts and that's a great avenue to do them, but they're, they're, it feels like they're still maybe an order of magnitude or two away from being able to do that. But so having, I mean, that, a lot of that research is going on um, in our region and is a, it is this exciting stuff. Um, the weaknesses, I think, um, you know, we, we've struggled as a region and it's because we have so much manufacturing here in particular that, uh, you know, it's hard to get competitors to come together to do something together. And, and, uh, you know, I think the, the stigma of manufacturing still exists. As I said, you know, we don't want to think of ourselves as machinists and it, and it forces us to think of ourselves as engineers before it starts feeling socially acceptable to ourselves. And I don't, I don't, uh, I don't sign on to that belief. Cause I think there, you know, we have a bunch of folks that want to work with their hands, love working with their hands, and they're doing what they love, and, and I'm excited to have them. I want them to keep learning and growing, but, um, you know, I think the challenge of how do we get, some, you know, actual competitors in the marketplace to come together as a region to do some successful stuff, that is a challenge, and um, so it, it feels like that's, we, we've really struggled to do that, especially, you know, the the way the government flows funds and resources between Cleveland and Akron and Canton. I mean, it's, you know, how much is regional, how much is local? And, and yeah, I'm sure every place has that, but um, you know, there's been a lot of efforts to try and uh, to, to work together. And it's, it's, it felt like a struggle to me. Um, the opportunities uh, I think, uh, you know, we have, again, we have tremendous ability to be competitive um, with other regions of the country, because our cost of living is so reasonable. Um, You know, and and now having, you know, the pandemic to expand kind of the remote workforce potential um, where where people don't, they can live in a nice weather place (laughs) during the winter of Cleveland um, and still be functional. Uh, Obviously on the manufacturing floor, you kind of have to be here, but there's a lot of of other work that's done in, in uh in our world that they could be done remotely and and uh you know there's just you know we do a ton of, of great manufacturing and there's a lot of impetus and effort to build on that that i think is is a big opportunity for us especially in light of uh you know just how affordable it is relative to some of the bigger metropolitan areas especially on the coast and in chicago um, and then the threats i, I mean that uh, you know there there is always change is hard in that sense that um, we're going to rest on this is how we've always done it and Mm -hmm. uh, you know that's a hard one to break and and you know I think you know we've been fortunate in having so many people under the age of 25 in our building that that they don't they're always looking to try and figure out you almost have to hold them back and to say okay we can't try anything but you know, we also do have to, to do some stuff to pay the bills and, and we can't, you know, we we can't abandon everything that we've learned just because we want to try something new. And and so that's that balance that we have to walk. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the the threat that we face of becoming obsolete um, with because too many of us want to just kind of, hey, this is how I do it. And if they don't like that, then so be it. And, and I think the 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 other aspect in manufacturing a lot of small businesses at 51 i'm on this the younger age of this the spectrum of folks that are running kind of the small the medium-sized uh manufacturing businesses and and you know the the next generation piece which is you know why we named our project the next generation project to, to get new young folks to understand and appreciate and and know what manufacturing is about um, i think there's a lot of Uh, you know, there's a lot of folks that are, you know, they're wanting to retire, but they're not sure what they're going to do with their business. And and, I don't, I don't have a good feel for what that's going to mean in the next uh, 15 or 20 years. Um, But uh, there's definitely some feeling of threat to that, that, that we could lose some of the knowledge and skills, even in just the, the, you know, the more experienced machinists that we have, you know, there's machines that are not really being run anymore, because People, you know, the skill set to run them is is gone, and we're mm-hmm. figuring out ways around that as an industry. But uh, you know, there's definitely concern, and that's you know coming back to that recruiting. And you know, the last two years, well, for us, it's been the last ten years of hey, where is that next wave of of manufacturing folks going to come from? You know, um, so it's not easy.
1: Yeah, and the you know we we talk about it all the time, you know, upskilling, right? Like okay. you know, you may have done something for three to four years, and you need to transition, or the machine is new, or, you know, there's a new technology out there that now we have to adapt to. And so is that, is that, should that be more on the company you currently work for? Or should companies have a partner that comes in, trains them up, and now they're good to go? Like, where where does that responsibility lie? Maybe both? Well, I, I do
0: think it's a shared responsibility. I think the other thing, and it's funny, you know,
1: for those of us who listen
0: to a lot of podcasts and a lot of Of interviews of highly successful people and almost to a person, they will talk about being a lifelong learner, about wanting to continue to engage. And and, you know, it's funny when you when you spend time listening to interviews and stuff on podcasts with those folks, you get normalized to that mindset. And yet that's not a normal mindset, right? We're we're conditioned as a society to fill spots in what is the industrialized world, right? We we are building spots for somebody to come in and, and push a button and, and make a part. And we've built this system and we'd really, you know, the, the old mindset of that was just, Hey, come in and do this job. Don't make any drama, just do this. And and we'll sell it as Hey, it's a good job. Again, it comes back to the, Hey, that's a good job. And you can come do this mindless activity for eight hours and go away. Well, that's just not, that's not what I would want to do. And, and yet our society kind of, you know, once you get to age 25 or 30, you, you know, you either decided to go to college or not, and now you've kind of found your spot and, and the thought that you could continue to grow starts to get beaten out of you, right? And, and as a young kid, maybe you were like me saying, hey, I want to play in the NBA one day. Well, I stopped growing. And actually, I was never that big in the first place. So the opportunity—I knew what that wasn't going to happen. Well, that didn't mean I couldn't still want to be involved or in in, in in part of a basketball zone. Now I've done some coaching, very low-level stuff, but it, you know, the opportunity to continue to learn and grow is something that I take for granted because I want to do it. And yet, that's not that's not normal. And so we offer a tremendous amount of training to our team. We do have some outside folks. And again, it's a combination of the desire and drive and example that we provide as leaders, as well as facilitating stuff. And, and there's some time and, you know, if you've been a part of a family where there was forced fun where, hey, guess what? We're going to go do this. Right. And, and you get the whining and complaining. And yet then you go and everybody has a good time. Right. And so we set up learning opportunities whenever everyone's like, oh, I can't believe I got to do it. And then you get in, in the room. And as long as you have engaging training, they're like, man, that was actually pretty useful. That was pretty helpful. Yeah. And so you kind of have to force some of it. And of course, that means you got to pay for some of it. Um, and it's best if they have a little invested in it, you know, some skin in the game. Um, but, but trying to encourage them, look, if you can continue to learn, the sky is the limit for you. And, and that's not a societal norm, right? It's just not. And and you know, I once heard somebody talking about, you know, we've, we've worked to do all this stuff efficiently so that we can do what with that extra time? So we can sit and watch Netflix and, and vegetate our brains, right? And, and so if that's all it's about doing, well, then it's really hard to say, hey, let's get better at this so that we can just vegetate more, <laughs> right? Absolutely. That's not, that's not aspirational, but, uh, you know, encouraging. And that's, I mean, we love having young folks in the building because they still are maybe ideological enough to to want to continue to learn and grow, and and we tell them they can, and they 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 believe it. Um, and and we know that if you have a mechanical engineering degree, you're not really coming here to run machines for the rest of your life. You're coming here to gain some knowledge and experience that then can translate into designing manufacturing processes for us or somebody um and and so it's a it's a journey they can see the path of growth in front of them and I think too often you know we've set up these big manufacturing facilities for some you know we need to plug some cogs into the machine as people and we will give some lip service to wanting them to grow I, I remember a number of years ago asking a friend of mine okay so wait let me get this straight so I said do you do you really want your people to get a, you know, go to school and get a degree? And their answer was, well, I want them to want to learn. I want them to learn more stuff. But if they go ahead and get the degree, then they're going to want to get a degree position from me. And then I don't know who's going to fill their spot on the shop floor. And so I laughed. I said, okay, so wait, that means you want them to learn and grow just enough just enough <laughs> to stay where they are until you retire, not until they retire, until you retire. And then you don't have to worry about that issue anymore. Right. Well, that's that. Unfortunately, you can't have that mindset around no. wanting them, you know, giving lip service to wanting them to grow, but then not really wanting them to grow and not really celebrating them when they do. Um, and, and again, it's, Hey, you always hate to lose somebody that you've poured into and yep. yet if you can celebrate them and use them as an example of the people coming behind it says, hey, this is what you can do if you apply yourself and you do well in this in this place, is you have opportunity that you didn't have. And and even convincing our young teammates that look, it's not about doing the minimum. It's about going to do as much as you can with what you've been given. I mean, you know, and that's again, it comes back to <laughs> comes back to Coach Wooden on. We just we want to reach to meet our potential as best we can, and and have that peace of mind that says, hey, we did all we could with what we had.
1: Yep, yep. That's a that's a good way to put a, a, a bow and a ribbon on this episode. But before I and, and this has been great. Before we get you out of here, um, you know, I I always say the same thing every episode. Sometimes it's the hardest question. But what uh, talk to me about your favorite favorite restaurant in Cleveland. I have now been learning, so I'm a, I'm from the East Coast. I've lived in Columbus now for two two years, which is crazy to say. Um, I'm now learning how big of a divide Cleveland is, oh. East versus West. I mean, <laughs> I, and, and I'm like, it's I'm like, wait a minute, it's just right here though. Like, there's great stuff. It is a big, big deal. Oh. You Thanks. you meet somebody,
0: so you meet somebody from Cleveland out on vacation, right? You're out west, and you meet somebody it's, Hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Cleveland. Where do you live? Where? Rocky River. Oh, yeah, I'll never see you again.
1: Yeah. And what? Cause right, okay. so I live in Highland Heights. I'm
0: I, I'm never gonna be over
1: there. What it's is just crazy? It? It's crazy. What is it? What? I, what is I, it? I have I have no
0: idea. It's just I mean, obviously, it's been that way my whole life. Um, and I, it just it just is, and and it's crazy. I totally acknowledge. Um, I don't know my way around the West Side at all. I just don't. And, and
1: okay so you're the east Sider, so, so all east side restaurant recommendations
0: absolutely so no i mean our go-to is sara's place in gates mills Got um uh, it's not fair because we know the owners but um it's just i mean i've never had a bad meal there um i mean it's it's right down the street from where i grew up and and it hasn't been there uh nearly that long but um you know, they, uh, they ran Gavi's in, in Willoughby, which is another east side yeah. spot, very close to where we are here in Willoughby. Um, and then they opened Sara's place. And, and uh, my my daughter babysat for Sara back when she was a kid. So I mean, we've known him a long time, but just a, a phenomenal restaurant. Um, so that's definitely our go-to. Um, trying to think what other, what other fun places. Nothing's really, I mean... And that's if we're going, if we got that's a, night, a night, that's where we're going.
1: That's where you're going. Nice. I love it. Warm. Yeah. No, I mean the East versus West, it's real deal. Um, well, listen, Andy, this was great. I really appreciate you coming on. Enjoyed the conversation and uh, you know, I'm sure we'll have you on again soon and kind of check in. And uh, but we wish you the best of luck this year. And uh, yeah, we'll talk with you soon. Awesome. And hey, hope your bracket is you, Did your bracket hold up? No, no. Yeah. I have two, I have two of my two of my Final Fours already gone. I mean, oh. just on day one, I ripped it up. I haven't looked since. I just knew it was over. Just you know what? I'm just gonna enjoy the games and forget about there it. There you go. Yeah, I just I mean
0: I, I have a nephew at Auburn, so they were obviously very disappointed there. Um, but so no, it's I mean, there's there's nothing like sitting down and having. I mean, you know, so Thursday night, yeah, we you know bunch of games to watch, and you know, it's amazing how how often they come down to that last couple minutes and that's the good stuff, right? To see who's going to do what. Uh, No, it's super fun. No. Hey, I appreciate the time, Paul. And, and uh, uh, you know, great to be
1: on with you. Yeah, of course. All right. We'll talk with you soon. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, sir.
0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Rust Belt Rundown. Make sure you check us out at rustbeltrecruiting.com. The Rust Belt Rundown is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and click on five stars if you enjoyed this episode. See you next time.